Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We come now to the final section, the final verses of the book of Malachi, Malachi's prophecy. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament in our English Bibles. It is um, physically the last book in the Old Testament. In the Hebrew Bible, it's actually not the last book, but it does come at the end chronologically. Um, the Hebrew Bible is just ordered differently. But in our English Bibles, it, it is really fitting to have it be the very end of the Old Testament. These are not just the last words of the Old Testament, but if you stop and think about it for a moment, it, these are the last words that God spoke to his people for a space of about 400 years before the events of the New Testament begin. So this last section that we're looking at are the last words, the last inspired words that God gave to his people for over 400 years until the angel Gabriel comes and begins to announce the coming of John and the Messiah. So there's this period of 400 years of silence with these words from God ringing in the ears of his people. God's final word in the Old Testament is the warning of a curse. In both the English and the Hebrew, the, the very last word in the Old Testament is curse. Um, and it's a word, we'll, we'll look at it in a little more detail in a little bit, but it's a word that also means not just curse like some, something bad is going to happen, but it actually means utter and complete destruction. It's the final word of the Old Testament. And yet in the center of this passage, we see also that God gives the promise of gospel victory and the vindication of his people. These two things go together at the end of Malachi. This ending, this emphasis of the utter destruction that will come upon the unfaithful and at the same time, gospel victory and the vindication of God's people. So as a uh, would ask that you have your Bibles open if you have them and are able to get to them. I know that can be challenging depending on who else is in your row. But have your Bibles open as we walk through the text together. Malachi begins this last section by saying that there is a day that is coming that is burning like an oven that will completely consume the wicked. In that day, for those who fear the Lord's name, the Son of Righteousness, which is speaking of the coming Messiah, speaking of Jesus, will also arise with healing in his wings. So you have dis complete destruction coming for the proud and those who do wickedly. And at the, in that same day, the Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in his wings for those who fear God's name. And then at that time, his people will go out with joy. They'll be strong and secure. The... Uh, uh, metaphor here is that they will go out as uh, they will grow fat like stall-fed calves. And there's a translation question here as to whether or not it should be translated to, to grow fat like a stall-fed calf or to go out like a calf that has been kept in a stall and is now released. Either, either metaphor, I think, works really well, and so let's just take them both together. You, you, um, God's people are doing, going to grow fat. They're going to go, grow strong and secure like the fatted calf that is well cared for. He, that is trusting in uh, its Lord and um, resting in the bounty that he is giving him. And at the same time, he's going, they're going to go out like a calf that has been kept in the stall and is now released. And a calf, a new, especially a newborn calf that is let out, is leaping around like crazy. They're full of joy and exuberance. That's what God's people will be like in that day. They will go out and they will be strong and secure in God's protection. They will trample the wicked like ashes under their feet, verse 3. So in verse 1, the wicked will be burnt up completely. They'll be like stubble. They won't stand before the fire. And then God's people are going to go out and they're going to trample on those ashes. 
and they're just going to fall before them with no resistance. The Lord then exhorts the people to remember the law of Moses in verse 4. The book concludes with a promise that Elijah the prophet will come before this day. So before this coming day of judgment, Elijah the prophet is going to come. And when he comes, he will bring reconciliation between children and fathers. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and turn the hearts of the children to the fathers. And this is what is going to be part of the ministry of this, uh, this coming Elijah. And apart from that kind of restoration, the Lord will come. He himself will come to strike the earth with a curse. He will come to strike the earth with utter destruction. Again, there's this great emphasis that is given in Malachi's prophecy that this is the very last word. It's a very strong word in Hebrew, and it's a very, it's a very dire warning that God leaves his people with. But I think this passage, and you won't be surprised by this, but I also think this passage is chiastic. And because of that, if we look at what the center of the chiasm says, there's another emphasis that this passage gives. And it, I think, provides a great contrast to the emphasis given to the curse. So I have in your notes the outline of the chiasm broken down there so you can see it. Verse 1 pairs with verses 5 and 6. Verse 1 says that a day is coming that will consume the wicked and the proud, and it will consume them root and branch. And we'll talk more about what that metaphor means and why it, how it helps us actually see the chiasm. But that pairs with verses 5 and 6, which tell us that before that coming day, Elijah will come and he will reconcile fathers and children. And if, that, and if that, they're not reconciled, if, if they don't receive his message, then there will come a great curse. Moving in from that, we have verse 2 pairs with verse 4. In verse 2, the son of righteousness rises with healing in his wings to God-fearers. And then verse 4 is the exhortation to remember the law of Moses. Fear of the Lord and remembering the law of Moses go together. But there's more parallels as well that we'll get into. And then right in the center, we have, this, uh, we have verse, verse 3. This verse that you shall trample the wicked. They shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. This is the, the God-fearers, those that fear the name of the Lord. They will advance and they will trample over the wicked. That's the other emphasis that this passage in Malachi, that the book of Malachi ends with. So you have on the one hand the emphasis of the curse that's coming, the utter destruction that's coming on those that do not turn to the Lord. And at the same time, this promise of gospel victory that comes to God's people. I want to take a couple minutes and speak to what this day is that Malachi is referring to. Malachi has already mentioned the coming day a couple of times in chapter 3. If you look back at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, that's where Malachi speaks about the coming messengers. There's two different messengers that are going to come to God's people. The first messenger is coming to prepare the way, uh, and, and we're told in the New Testament that that's speaking about John the Baptist. And he comes and he prepares the way for the second messenger, who is Christ, because he comes and he comes to purify the sons of Levi. He comes to uh, purify the temple. He comes to bring, uh, bring restoration to the worship of God. That's the first time we see that Malachi mentioned this coming day. The second time is in uh, chapter, the end of chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Malachi here talks about a, a particular day where he's going to make the people that fear him, he's going to make them his special treasure. He's going to spare them as a father spares his own son. When we, when we looked at that passage, we saw that um, there's a connection there to the 
the, to the gospel of God is going to spare his people. He's going to spare those that fear him as a man spares his own son by means of not sparing his own son for their sakes. So he's going to send his son to die for them so that they might be spared. But this is all talking about this day that is coming. On that day that's coming, and then we get to chapter 4. Malachi says, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. The day which is coming shall burn them up. And then in verse 2, or sorry, at the end of verse 3, You shall trample the wicked, they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this. This day that is coming. What is this day that Malachi is speaking about? I think he is uh, speaking primarily of the time and results of Jesus coming. This is clear because he's talking about Jesus coming. He's talking about John the Baptist coming. He's talking about a great destruction that is coming and a great sparing that is coming all at the same time. He's speaking primarily about the destruction, the coming of Jesus, and then the rejection of Jesus by the Jews, and then the great destruction that comes upon Jerusalem in 70 AD. The believing Jews are spared then, not only by their new life in Christ, they're spared because they believe in Christ and they're spared of the second death, but they're also spared in the sense that they are able to get out of Jerusalem if they obey Jesus' words. In Matthew 24, when Jesus is speaking about the destruction that will come upon Jerusalem, he tells those that believe in him to flee, to flee Jerusalem and get to the mountains. And there's historical records that talk about the number of Christians that fled Jerusalem right before the city fell, right before the temple was destroyed. And there's good good reason to think that there were actually no Christians in Jerusalem when the city fell, because they all listened to the voice of Jesus and they fled the city and got out. God spares his people not only Of course, the the primary way that he spares his people is in um, redeeming them from their sins so that they don't fall into the second judgment, the final judgment. But he also, in history, spares his people at that time by bringing them out of Jerusalem. However, those proud, the the proud uh, that Malachi speaks of in verse 1, whose hearts were not turned, they are met with the burning oven of God's wrath as the temple and the whole structure of the sacrificial system was committed to destruction. And this is reminiscent of, uh, the, again, this idea of the curse that comes. Um, this is, the, the word for curse here is cherem in Hebrew. And it's this, it's this word that is used often in the law, not often, but a number of times in the law. And it's used to describe a type of destruction which, which was complete annihilation. Um, God uses this in Deuteronomy 13. He tells Moses to tell the people that if they, if they know a city, if there's a city in, um, in Israel that has gone after the Canaanite gods. So they've come into the land, they've taken over the land, and they've settled there. And if they, if they find out that there's a city that has turned apostate, they've returned to worshiping idols, and they're trying to draw others after them to go follow these Canaanite gods, then the Israelites were commanded to go and to completely annihilate that city. They were commanded to go and and offer it up to devote it to the Lord as harem, as a complete destruction, and completely wipe it out. This is what is in mind then when God says to his people at the end of Malachi, I will come and strike the earth with a curse. I will come and strike the earth with harem. I will come and strike the earth, and particularly speaking of Jerusalem, of his people, I will strike them with this curse if they do not turn to me. And of course, this is culminated and and points ahead to the final judgment where God does this as well. We see this in Revelation 20, where God takes the wicked and the proud and those that have have not turned to him, and he casts them into the lake of fire, along with death and Hades. 
They're cast into the lake of fire. They're, com- they're devoted to destruction, this complete annihilation, this complete destruction. So this is what Malachi's prophecy ends with. And it has this in view, not just, it's, it, it's this curse that is coming specifically upon Jerusalem because it's talking about the day that Jesus will come. When Jesus comes, he's the son of righteousness. He rises from the dead. He ascends to the father's throne. And the question is, will the Jews turn and repent? They've crucified him. So the, t- the clock is ticking. Destruction is coming. Will they turn and repent in time? And some do. There's this great revival that happens that we read about the beginning of Acts. There's a great revival in Jerusalem. Many Jews turn and believe in Christ, but many don't. And those that don't are destroyed with the temple. So this is the coming day. This is what is in in Malachi's view as he gives this prophecy. I want to take time now to walk through the passage, looking at this chiasm more specifically and see how these things are parallel and see, I think, some some fascinating connections and things that Malachi brings all together here in this passage. So looking at the parallel of verse 1 and verses 5 and 6, we have um, both of these passages speak of the coming day and the complete destruction that it will bring. The phrase uh, root and branch in verse 1, there's a couple different things worth pointing out about that. Root and branch is a, is a way to describe, again, this idea of completely destroying something. If you're destroying something, if, God's, if these people are being burnt up like stubble, root and branch, that means the whole thing is being burnt up. There's nothing left over. That parallels with this idea at the end of verse 6 that God is striking the earth with this harem curse. So it's this complete destruction. Root and branch is also, I think, contrasted with the fathers and children in verse 6. Think of it this way, when the wicked are consumed, they are totally cut off. There is no branch that comes from their root anymore. It's another way of talking about um, the, the production of generations or children coming from a root. When the wicked are cut off, they are completely cut off. There's no more branches that come. In contrast, um, Elijah, when he comes before the day of judgment, he turns the hearts of the people so that generations are reconciled. So instead of uh, the judgment wiping out generations so that there's nothing left, Elijah comes and he restores generations. The hearts of the fathers are turned to the children and the children to the fathers. We're told that this, is, uh, this Elijah who is coming is speaking specifically of John the Baptist. Jesus tells us this in Matthew 11 and also the angel, when, he, when the angel gives the prophecy to uh, John the Baptist's father, it says that John is this coming Elijah. Uh, The Jews, uh, many of the Jews actually, because of this prophecy, developed a a theology of almost reincarnation. They're expecting Elijah himself, the Elijah of the Old Testament, to come back and to be reincarnated as this prophet that comes. Um, But Jesus tells us that that's not what's going on. Instead, it is actually speaking of John the Baptist. What was John the Baptist's message? Uh, Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. If you're in Malachi, it's just a couple pages over. I want to read a few verses here from, from Matthew chapter 3 as we, as we consider what was this message that this Elijah was going to bring. Matthew tells us, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. That's, as a side note, that's another parallel between Elijah the prophet and John the Baptist. They're both known for the hairy clothing that they would wear and what they ate in the wilderness. So then, verse 5, then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So John the Baptist comes and he preaches a message of repentance, specifically pointing ahead to the Messiah who would come. Just after this, John says, I'm, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm, I'm coming to prepare the way for the one whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And he identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God. He's, John comes to point to Christ. He's coming to prepare the way for him. But he does so by preaching a gospel or a message of repentance. And I think one thing we don't often realize is, um, I think Matthew indicates that there's a, there's a great revival that breaks out in and around Jerusalem at John the Baptist preaching. The people are flocking out to him in huge numbers, repenting, confessing their sins. They're turning back to the Lord in huge numbers. And that gets the Pharisees' attention. And so then they come out to, to John and start questioning him. Who do you think you are giving all this teaching and, and causing this great ruckus? But there's this great revival that seems to break out at the beginning of Matthew as the, as the Jews are hearing John the Baptist's message and repenting of their sins. But this begs a question, how does this, what John is doing here, how does that fit with what Malachi prophesies? Malachi says that Elijah, or John, is going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. How does this work and how is this message of repentance that John is preaching accomplish this? As we look back at the prophecy of Malachi, the theme of God's fatherhood runs through Malachi, through the whole book. Um, let me give you just a couple examples. In chapter 1, verse 6, God says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? God is father, but the people are not honoring him. In chapter 2, verse 10, God says, Have we not, this is Malachi speaking, Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another? By profaning the covenant of the fathers. Isn't God our father? Isn't he the one that has created us and made us and given us the way that we should live? Why do we deal treacherously with his commandments then? And again, in chapter 3, verse 17, which we've already um, alluded to today, God says, they shall be mine on the day that I make them my jewels and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. That's just a few of the references. There's actually more to this theme of fatherhood that runs all through the book of Malachi. The Jews, uh, throughout the book, as what we're seeing is that the Jews were unfaithful in their covenant with God. Their covenant unfaithfulness to God is what God is, is coming to them about in the book of Malachi. They are his people. He's delivered them from Egypt. He's delivered them now from Babylon as well. He set his laws before them, ways that they should live so that they would delight in the Lord, and yet they have not been faithful before him. In other words, they are not acting like sons of Abraham. Uh, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, and Jesus says the same thing in John chapter 8, that those who um, are, are truly sons of Abraham have the faith of Abraham. They do the works of Abraham. 
But the Jews in Malachi's day and the Jews in Jesus' day, for the most part, especially the Pharisees and the scribes that Jesus is speaking to, did not have the faith of Abraham. They were not actually sons of Abraham. Even if they could trace their bloodline back to Abraham, Jesus says, you're not really sons of Abraham. You don't have his faith. And so in Malachi, we have this theme of fatherhood, and you have this theme of the Jews' covenant unfaithfulness to their father. They've turned away from him time and time again. He's brought accusation after accusation against them, and they are not turning. They're not acting like sons of Abraham. And so I think as we come then to the end of Malachi, this idea of um, when, when Malachi prophesies that he will turn the hearts of, children, of fathers to the children and children to the fathers, in one sense, that's a very surprising ending to the book of Malachi. It's not really what you would expect to find. God has been talking a lot about his fatherhood and about his relationship to the people. He's been talking about worship. He's been talking about their hypocrisy in worship. He's brought all these accusations against them. There's this prophecy now about the, the coming judgment and the coming son of righteousness. And then he stops and he starts talking about families. And that's what he concludes with. It seems really surprising. But if we stop and we think about the way in which God has worked through history with his people, and we think about the the theme of fatherhood that we see in Malachi, I think there's a pretty easy implication that we can bring to this last verse. And that is that um, uh, division and conflict with God the Father brings division and conflict between immediate fathers and children. If you are not right with your heavenly father, you won't be right with your earthly father. If you're not right with your heavenly father, you won't be right with your earthly children. These things cannot go together. And I think this is a, uh, there's a, a particular application I want to point out here, given that this is Sanctity of Life Sunday. We look at our nation and we see, increasingly, we understand more and more of what's going on, and we see the horror of abortion in our land. We see how um, prominent it is, how regular it is, and how it is um, demanded more and more that it become um, accepted, praised. We're, um, we're told that we need to, if, if you've had an abortion, you need to shout your abortion and take pride in it. Take pride in the murder of these children. This is the state of our country. Why, is, why are we like this? this? This is the kind of thing that our nation collectively is guilty of. It is the kind of thing that the Canaanites were guilty of. We're acting more like pagans, like old ancient pagans, than a Christian nation. Why is that? It's because we have, fundamentally, we have rejected God as Father. If we reject God as Father, then it makes total sense that we have many, many, many children that are completely abandoned by their fathers and then murdered by their mothers. That makes total sense if we've rejected God as Father. That's why when we look at our nation, that's, that's the state that we're in. We reject God as father, and so our fathers themselves don't act like fathers, and the children are murdered because of it. And so, John comes, and he preaches a message of repentance. He preaches this message of repentance, of turning back to the father, 
And this prepares the way for the gospel message that Jesus is the only way to truly be reconciled to the Father. We're told that John comes and he comes to prepare the way for Christ. He comes preparing the way because he's calling the people to turn back to the Father. They need to turn back to the Father, but that he's followed shortly by Jesus himself, who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The way to be truly reconciled, forgiven of your sins, reconciled with your Father, and then reconciled with your, uh, with your earthly relationships is through Christ, and only through Christ. Elijah or John will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, not directly. We look at what John was preaching, the record of what we have John preaching, and there's nothing in there that says he's talking to fathers and telling them to be reconciled with their children or telling children to be reconciled with their fathers. But he is calling them back to their heavenly father. He is calling them back to the ways of their fathers, of their father Abraham. Be reconciled with Abraham. Walk in his ways. Walk in that faith. Be reconciled with your heavenly father. And the indirect result of that is reconciliation between parents and children. There is great joy that comes from being reconciled to the father. And this is something that we need to make sure as, as we, um, we ought to preach vehemently against the, the sin and the murder that is abortion. And we should never shy away from calling it that. And at the same time, we need to just as vehemently preach total forgiveness, complete forgiveness for the sin of abortion, for those that turn and repent and turn back to the Father. There, there is no sin. I think we could say in, in one sense that abortion for our, for our nation, abortion is perhaps the greatest sin. There's, there's an argument to be made for that. It's a direct assault against the image of God. It's a direct assault against loving your neighbor. It's murdering the innocent and the helpless and the defenseless. And that sin is not too big for the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive. He already died for it. It's already been paid for. And there are many, 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 many Christians who themselves in their past have been guilty of committing abortions. Such were some of you. Paul says. But you've been justified. You've been sanctified. You've been brought into reconciliation with God the Father. And he forgives it all. And he doesn't hold it against you. This is the message of repentance that John preaches. When that kind of repentance comes, when that kind of confessing your sins, owning your sin, calling it what it is, and turning with that sin to Jesus and saying, here, it's too heavy for me to bear. Would you take it? He says, yes, willingly, and I already have. It's already been paid for. There is great joy that comes from being reconciled to the Father. But in God's kindness, there is, uh, that, that joy is multiplied when generations are reconciled to him and worship him together. And God, God willing, we will see that in our nation. God willing, we will see generations of faithfulness, not because we do things right, but because we become a repentant people. Because we become a people that repent of our sins, own our sins, 
and then worship the God faithfully through the generations. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I want you to see this because, it, it's, again, it's possible to read that last verse of Malachi and, and really think, what in the world is he talking about? But I want you to see that this idea of the fathers and the children being turned toward one another in reconciliation to the father, that's part of God's design. Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is where God, God has just given to the people um, a second time the Ten Commandments. He's told them, this is the way that you should live in covenant with me. And then he says this, the beginning of chapter 6. Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his, all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. God's design is for his people to grow up confessing their sins, for his people to grow up confessing their sins. And when a people does that, when a people takes responsibility for their own, when individuals take responsibility for their own sins, God brings reconciliation. Because if you are right with God, then you are able to be right with those around you. But if you're not right with God, it won't work to try to fix things with your brother. It won't work to try to fix things with your father. It won't work to try to fix things with your spouse. If you are not right first with God, those things won't get fixed. And there's no, it's not, it's not like it's magical where you get right with God and then all of a sudden everything's fine. But in God's providence and in his timing and in his ways, when you are right with God, he sets everything else to rights. In his own way, in his providence. But this is God's design. And I think this gives hope to Christians in all ages who desire to see their fathers and their children or other loved ones worshiping the Lord with them. There are many people in this room that have fathers or mothers or spouses or children or grandchildren that are not walking with the Lord. And I know many of you pray for them regularly. And this is here, God's words are here to give you hope. To give you hope because God's design is that you be worshiping the Father with those that, that you are connected with. And when we see, I don't see how it's going to work out or I see that it, it, it doesn't seem that it's working out, we still rejoice and we trust the Father with it. It's all his providence. It's in his timing. But these verses are here to give you hope. To continue laboring in prayer for those people. To not give up. God is not done yet. He is still at work and he desires to see people worshiping him, fathers and children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And that's one other reason why at, at this church we encourage and practice having the children in the worship service with, with us here. Our worship service should be noisy. Our worship service should be disrupted because there are children here. Jesus welcomed that kind of disruption. And so kids, you are welcome to be in here with us, worshiping with us, because Jesus has called you to come and worship him. He's called you to be here, and he wants you to come. He wants you to come into his presence gladness with singing and rejoicing. And you're not able to sit as still as your parents are, or as your parents want you to. And that's okay, come anyways. Come and worship the Lord. It should be uh, noisy and, and loud in here because that's what God delights to see. 
fathers and children and grandparents and great-grandparents and great-grandchildren worshiping the Lord together. This is his design. As we move into, towards the center of this passage, we have a parallel between chapter, or verse 2 then, back in Malachi chapter 4, parallel between verse 2 and verse 4. In verse 2, we're told about the son of righteousness who will arise with healing in his wings. This points ahead to the coming Messiah. We're told that Jesus is the light of the world in a number of different places that say this, but a couple in your notes there are Matthew chapter 4 and John chapter 8. Jesus is the light of the world. He comes to bring light to a dark world. He is this son of righteousness. When he rises, Malachi tells us that the saints will go out rejoicing. They'll go out Go out strong and secure in their Lord. The metaphor here for Christ, this, this idea of the son of righteousness, is really rich. There are lots of um, different angles to look at this at. And what's really fun is, that, is how freely Malachi mixes metaphors here. So for those of you grammarians that say you can't mix metaphors, the Bible does. So, so there. Okay, so Malachi says that this son of righteousness will come with healing in his wings. When Christ rises, the light of the gospel gives life, like the healing rays of the sun to those who have been in the dark. Uh, we're at that time of year in Washington where you will go days without seeing the sun. And you know that feeling when you walk outside and it happen, there's, there's a day or a moment when the sun breaks through and you feel the rays of the sun on you and how, how reviving that is. It doesn't even have to be warm. It just has to be sunlight. And it's, it is beautiful. And the, next, the next time you experience that in these next few months, remember that that's, that's a reminder of the gospel. That's a reminder of the gospel coming with healing in its wings, reviving God's people. When he rises, the light of the gospel gives life like the healing rays of the sun. And these rays are like wings, right? The sun of righteousness has wings. Suns don't actually have wings. But this sun does. These rays are like wings. And they go out and they, they grant healing. But Jesus also speaks about his wings when he's uh, looking over Jerusalem. And he says to, he's bewailing Jerusalem, how Jerusalem has not turned to him. And he says, how I wished I could have gathered you together like a hen gathers her chicks under its wings. Jesus desires to grant comfort and protection to his people. And he does this with these wings that he's said to have. The same kind of language is used in a number of places in the Psalms where we gather under the refuge of the Almighty. We gather under his wings. These wings are for our protection and comfort. So this is what the son of righteousness is like. He comes and he, he rises and he revives his people. He grants healing and protection and comfort in his coming. There's another really fascinating uh, um, uh, part of this metaphor. The Jews were commanded, turn, turn in your Bibles, I want you to see this. Turn to your Bibles to Numbers chapter 15. Another place in the law. <clears throat> At the end of Numbers 15, the last section, verse 37, the Jews are told to put tassels on the edges of their garments. And they're to do this to remind them of God's law. Let's, let's see this here. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments or the edges of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. 
and you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them, and that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined, and that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So the Jews were instructed to put these tassels on the edge of their garments, and the reason was so that they would wear them and be reminded constantly of God's commandments. They're, they're to see the tassels and to, and to be reminded of God's commandments, to love him with their heart, soul, mind, and strength, to keep the Ten Commandments, to follow God in all their ways. They're like the psalmist in Psalm 1, who, uh, or the blessed man who meditates on God's law day and night, because it's always with him. It's always on the edges of their garments. Okay, now what's really fascinating is in Hebrew, um, Hebrew is considered a poor language, in, which just means that you have not a, not a wide variety of vocabulary. So the same words are sometimes used to mean multiple things. And sometimes this is used to great poetic effect. The word for the edges of the garments is the same word in Hebrew as wings. Jesus rises and he brings healing in his kanaf in the edges of his garments. This makes a lot of sense then of the woman with the flow of blood for 12 years who sees Jesus and goes to him and, and, she, and her desire, she says, is if I can just reach the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. I don't think it's just that she just wanted to touch Jesus in some way, although that may be part of it. But, I, but the woman with the, with the flow of blood for 12 years has faith that Jesus is the Messiah and so she goes to him because she knows Malachi's prophecy. Or maybe she doesn't consciously know it, but she understands this connection between the, 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 the edge of the garments and the wings of this son of righteousness. So the Hebrew word for wings is the same as the, as the, hedge or the, the hem or the edge of a garment. And it's fitting then that the Lord's parting exhortation in the Old Testament is, remember the law of Moses. Why? So we come to the very end of the Old Testament, which if you're just reading through your Bible and you're passing on to Matthew, you come to the end of the Old Testament, and, and in our um, uh, sort of American popular theology, we're supposed to set aside the Old Testament as we come to the New Testament. They're not really connected. And the Old Testament ends saying, remember the law of Moses. But if this is true that there's this connection between the coming of the Son of Righteousness, the healing in his wings, the healing that he brings, and the connection between the wings and God's law, there's healing from following God's law. But it doesn't end there. The, the tassels are not to remind them, they're, they're not, the tassels themselves or God's law itself can't bring healing. We know that. We know that trying to keep God's law is futile in and of itself. And we know that because we're still sinners, we can't keep God's law. We don't do it very well. But the tassels would remind the Jews now, think, think, put yourself in, um, the, in the shoes of the faithful in Malachi's day. Malachi has just demonstrated this connection between the Old Testament law, remembering God's law, and the coming Messiah. When Jesus comes, the tassels, or looking ahead to when Jesus comes, the tassels on the edge of their garments would remind the Jews not only of the law, but of the one that the law pointed to. 
the one that would come and bring the healing that the law could not give. The law doesn't heal us. The law can't save us. But the one to whom the law points, what the law does, what God's law does, it reveals your sin. It reveals your sinfulness. It reveals the way in which you fall short of God's glory over and over and over and over again. But what the law is supposed to do is to point you then to your need for Savior, your need for grace, your need for Jesus. And so this reminder of the law is also a reminder to look ahead to the one who would bring this healing. So then at the center, at the very center of this passage, the Lord declares that the faithful will trample over the wicked. And if we take this with the previous verse, with them going out, we see a picture of the beginning of the church and the gospel takeover of the world. In his life before the cross, Jesus healed much. But his healing, the healings that he performed, um, which were, uh, there were so many, John says he could, not, he could not write them all down. There were too many to count. But his healings were just a taste of the healing that he would bring when he was raised from the dead and raised to the right hand of the Father. He brings healing to the world when the, when the Son of Righteousness rises on Easter morning. He brings healing to the world. And furthermore, he, having conquered sin and death, he then rose to the right hand of the Father. And when he does so, he sends his church out. In the Great Commission, Jesus says, Therefore, go, disciple the nations. He sends his church out. And he sends them out to overcome the wicked, to overcome the darkness, by the preaching of the gospel, by the bringing of the light to the darkness, to drive the darkness out of this world. And his saints continue to do this work of advancing his kingdom until death meets its final end and all of Christ's enemies have been placed under his feet. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that, that Christ must reign until all of his enemies have been put under his feet and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And so the work of the church now is to continue bringing forth the kingdom, rolling out the kingdom over the world, pushing back the darkness, and we do so by confessing our sins and teaching others to confess their sins. And we're to do this until Christ comes again. We're to do this until he has put all of his, all of his enemies under his feet. And they advance. They do this advance. They go forth trampling the wicked, rejoicing and secure. Again, this idea of the stall-fed calf. Rejoicing and secure of um, Christ's care for them. So you see in the Great Commission, Jesus says, go out into the world and I am with you always. And we see that foreshadowed here in Malachi. Malachi says, they're going to go out and they're going to go out rejoicing and secure and in the comfort of their Lord. Jesus wins. And because of this, again, Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus wins. And because of this, we know that our labor is not in vain. And so again, a particular application of this for, for this Sunday, our labor in praying against the murder of children, our labor in working for the different clinics that, that several of you are involved in, our labor in raising our own children to fear the Lord, our labor in coming alongside those that have had abortions and are dealing with that and repenting of it, our labor in coming alongside those that are considering abortions and showing them the light of the gospel, that labor 
often seems very fruitless. Talking to people at clinics often feels very fruitless. Raising your children often feels very fruitless. But if Jesus wins, if he's king and Lord, then Paul says your labor is not in vain. Keep planting, keep plowing, keep watering. God brings the increase. The same, again, the application of praying for those that are not believing that you know in your family. Your labor for them, your your prayers, your worship of God in the midst of that distress is not in vain. Keep laboring, keep laboring, keep working with hope because Jesus wins. He's king over it all. We already know the end of the story. And so, therefore, your labor is not in vain. Malachi's oracle, Malachi's prophecy is full. The whole book is full of sharp rebukes and sharp accusations. Malachi doesn't, the Lord through Malachi doesn't pull any punches. Remember the middle of, or the beginning of chapter two, where he tells the Levites that he's going to smear the refuse and the dung of their sacrificial feasts on their faces. Malachi is full of that kind of language, that kind of sharp rebuke against those that are not fearing the Lord. And God particularly strikes at the heart of hypocrites in Malachi, of those that put on a face of worshiping God and yet do not fear him in their hearts. And the message then that we, that we get, that we apply, I think, from Malachi is particularly for professing believers. That there is the gospel in Malachi, and it's, it is to be given to all unbelievers, but it's particularly for professing believers, those that are a part of the church. It's particularly for hypocrites in the church, for those that put on a face of worshiping God, but do not fear him, do not fear him in their hearts. Do not keep his laws in secret. Malachi concludes with a dire warning of utter destruction. You will be like the Canaanite cities that God told the Israelites to burn to the ground. You will be like the Israelite cities that went apostate and God told their own people to burn them to the ground. That's what God says of hypocrites. In Malachi, that's the warning that he leaves those that do not fear him in their hearts. That's what he leaves them with at the end of Malachi. But to those who fear the Lord, who cry out to him, who confess their sins, who confess their hypocrisy, who confess that, yes, I've put on a show of worshiping the Lord, but no, Lord, I don't worship you in your heart. Forgive me. For those who turn in fear to the Lord, who cry out to him and who confess their sins, there is great gospel hope in Malachi. Jesus wins in the end and his victory means peace for you if you turn to him. His victory means rest, freedom from despair and anxiety for you if you turn to him. His victory means courage for you in the things that he has set before you to do if you turn to him. His victory means security for you. His victory means reconciliation in your relationships if you turn to him. Because if you turn to him, remember that he is the good shepherd. And if he is the good shepherd, then you have no want. He is your all. 
And he gives you far more than just himself. But he gives you himself so that you have no want. In short, this gives us, his victory gives us the hope, the security, the rest in looking forward to and then eventually the reality of eternal life. That's set before you. And so remember the law of Moses. This is how Malachi ends. Remember the law of Moses. Not because you need to keep all of the laws first and foremost. Remember the law of Moses because it teaches you the way to live and to be holy. And it teaches you that you need Jesus. It points and speaks of him. It points you and speaks of him. Remember God's law. Remember God's law because it points you to Jesus because you need him. Remember the son of righteousness who died for your sins so that you might live as his forgiven and victorious people. So you can go out and walk as forgiven people. Forgiven of your sins, victoriously walking in Christ through everything that he sets before you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for sending your son to be our righteousness and to heal us from our sins. Father, teach us to fear you rightly. Keep us from hypocrisy, from thinking that we can please you with our actions or with our posturing and while we instead give our hearts to other things. Teach us to rest in the victory that we have in Christ, to rest in his righteousness instead of our own. Father, Teach us to go out then as forgiven people that we would walk confidently in the victory that is ours in Christ. And so it is in his name alone that we pray. Amen. Amen.